Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 23. Till We Have Faces, Part 2, Chapter 3, The Judgment of Orwall. Good morning and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season we're reading Till We Have Faces. My name is David and I am joined by Matt a bull in a bear market bush. Oh, that's a really good one. Thank you. Oh, I was quite proud of that. I came up with that a couple of days ago. Yeah. And, and for listeners, so I do work in the, well, this isn't going to make any sense to them because by the time they listen to this, the markets will be way past. So I could timestamp this right now on Sunday, March 29th. So my predictions are Monday, we were close to the low in the markets. That's like a 35% peak to trough. But I think we're going to retest them in the next couple of weeks. And I do think we probably go slightly lower, maybe 5 to 10% more. And then that's it. The markets are done and you are going to wish to God you bought five years from now. It's like looking back in 2014, 15, 16, being like, why didn't I, when everyone was freaking out in 2009, buy stocks? Because whenever you're freaking out, that's the time to do it. There's your free advice that you're going to get like a month later. See how many podcasts you know, on theology also give you some good stock market advice, huh? Yeah. I could go on further, but we have a time limit to how much we can record. Yeah. So tell us, what are you drinking today? Well, seeing as I've completely abandoned Exodus 90, it's not actually, it's not actually fully true. I still, I love the cold showers in the morning. I still end up doing my hour of prayer a day and I still follow the food guidelines. Yeah. I guess it's just the media and drinking. <laughs> <laughs> I think one feeds the other. They do. When you're sitting, when you are for a whole weekend, because I live on my own in full isolation, when you can't do anything except FaceTime people, it's like, you know what? Let's do a FaceTime happy hour. And I'm just going to have a drink. Or on a Friday night, you know what? I'm going to watch a cheap chick flick rom-com. And <laughs> that's what I'm doing. Marie and I at the moment, we're watching Jojo Rabbit. So good. Is it really? Yes. You wouldn't think that a movie about a little boy and his make-believe friend Adolf Hitler could be this funny. Are you? I've never even heard of this. Check, check out the trailer. I will. And someone just told me to watch modern romance or modern love, so that's the new thing for me. Ugh. What are you drinking? Bacardi and Coke with a heavy squeeze of lime. Nice. Well, I am drinking some of my engagement scotch. So the day after I got engaged, I went out and bought myself a bottle of scotch. And it's the Glenmorangie La Santa. Oh, that was so good. It's actually a pretty cheap bottle of scotch for bottles of scotch. Mm-hmm. And it was just really what I thought I was going to be in the mood for. And I think I am. They're beautiful. So in order for me to be able to drink this, please tell us the quote of the week. You'll say, you've been whispering it to me these 40 years, that I'd signs enough her palace was real, could have known the truth if I'd wanted to. But how could I want to know it? I liked that because... This gets back to a conversation we've been having. Andrew Lyles has been bringing it up. Did she, did she have enough science to know it? Did she not? How much are we supposed to sympathize? How much are we not? How much was it due to it was just mysteriousness, not her fault? But whoa, maybe some of it is because she didn't want to see the signs. Hmm. Well, stay tuned because we will get to that later. And now that gifts have begun rolling out to our Patreon supporters, it's time for us that we started uh, toasting those who have been supporting us at the $10 level or more. 
And so I randomly select the first person, and this week we're going to toast Ted Doherty. I would say, well, I'm gonna, are you sure it's that way or is it Ted Doherty? Uh, in my English accent, I would pronounce the T. Uh, but since he's American, let's say Ted Doherty. <laughs> Ted, do you have a T in your name? Hold on to it. Yes, Matt might be wrong here, but I had a college roommate with that same spelling, and it was Doherty. Doherty. Okay, Ted, uh, may you always find a cup of tea to quench your thirst and a good long book on the table beside you. Cheers. Cheers. And thank you so much, Ted, obviously. That's very kind. We appreciate everyone helping us support this ministry. Guys, I don't know about you, and hopefully you have enough time to submit these by the time you hear this episode, but please submit your questions on Slack for Andrew Lazo for his part two that we're going to have on in a few weeks. If you heard his part one, first of all, go listen to that if you haven't, because that was insane. My mind was blown. I, he's a part of our Slack community. Shout out if you want to be a part of that. You have access to being able to talk with him, $5 on Patreon. But he is a part of that, and I had to send him a direct message just saying that that was brilliant, and my mind is racing. And that's only, he could only talk about part one. David restricted him, which means he had restricted, he had a muzzle on the wisdom he could share with us. So in part two, there's going to be so much more. This is your chance to ask him the questions. Go listen to his part one. And before we start getting into this week's chapter, I was listening to an earlier episode of the two of us, and it was when we were talking about Orwell's dreams and visions and what they might possibly mean. Well, this week I was finishing off a book. It's The Fellowship, Literary Lives of the Inklings. It's by Zaleski and Zaleski. And something in it jumped out at me when they were talking about Charles Williams. So Charles Williams, he was one of the Inklings, uh, and he taught something called coherence. And I'm definitely not going to do it justice. And actually, if anyone out there knows of a Charles Williams scholar that we should talk to, I'd love to bring them on the show and unpack this a little bit more. But here is the Wikipedia entry for coherence. Coherence was a term used in patristic theology, so that's the early church fathers, to describe the relationship between the human and divine natures of Jesus Christ and the relation between the persons of the Trinity. Charles Williams extended the term to include the ideal relationships between individual parts of God's creation, including human beings. It's our mutual indwelling, Christ in us and we in Christ, interdependent. And it's also the web of interrelationships, social and economic and ecological, by which the social fabric of the natural world functions. But especially for Williams, and this is the important part, coherence is a way of talking about the body of Christ and the communion of saints. He proposed an order, so this was a group that he founded, the Companions of the Coherence, who would practice substitution and exchange, truly bearing one another's burdens, being willing to sacrifice and to forgive, living from and for one another in Christ. So that was the Wikipedia entry, and you might recall our discussions with Paddy Callahan, where we found out that Lewis prayed to take on some of his wife's suffering when she had bone cancer. And as he lost bone density, she regained it. And it's my suspicion that something like this is happening, something like this is going on between oral and psyche, that these visions describe the challenges which were traditionally labors of psyche, not oral. But I think until we have faces, I think oral is somehow mystically sharing in psyche's burdens. Charles Williams, I was at a very early spot in my theological journey, but I read his book, The Descent into Hell, and it's about substitutionary theology or something like that. 
definitely way over my head. Even what you're reading is still over my head. But this is that concept of taking it on was a part of that book. I remember that much when I was reading some summaries online because Matt was not (laughs) digesting any of it himself. He needed someone else to do it for him. But yes, he is the one that I've just never been able to wrap my head around. He's, he's incredibly intellectual and he's not very accessible. Working through this Inklings book really helped, but I definitely want to get a Williams Scholar on next season to talk about him some more. That's a great idea. Now, on to chapter three. Oh, can I first say, oh, what a touching thing it was that Patty sent that email. You just mentioned Patty <laughs> Callahan. She sent an email. She listened to the talks. If you guys haven't gone and listened to that, you can go listen to it. I still haven't listened to my own talk back. I don't mind listening to our episodes here over and enjoy it sometimes to learn from them. I won't listen to my talk. You should. It was pretty good. You can really see my handiwork in there. <laughs> <laughs> I died laughing at your email that you replied back taking credit. That was great. Yeah. So she sent you an email to my address. I just said that she clearly just associates me with excellence. <laughs> I didn't put two and two together. That's so great. I love it. All right. Now we can start the chapter. Okay. Here's my summary of chapter three. Orwell has given time to ponder the events of the last few days. She concludes that she must make her soul beautiful, but quickly discovers her inability to do so without divine help. She has a vision of golden rams where she tries to take some of their wool. They charge her while another woman gleans their wool caught on the hedge. Orwell feels detached from day-to-day life, but comforts herself with the certainty of her love for Psyche. She then has another vision where she's seeking the water of death in a desert. She comes to a mountain where she is taken into a cave in order to read her complaint against the gods. Rather than reading her book, she reads an older, smaller book over again and again. Eventually, the judge stops her and asks if she has received her answer. She responds that she has. So the last few days have been rather intense for Orwell. Fortunately, she says that the gods left me some days to chew on the strange bread they had given me. I was Ungit. What did that mean? Do the gods flow in and out of us as they flow in and out of each other? And again, they would not let me die till I had died. Now, just before we go on, notice the Charles Williams sorts of phrase about the gods flowing into and out of each other, that kind of interrelationship. And one other thing that I noticed when she talks about they gave me some days to chew on the strange bread. In the original myth, Psyche is eating some old bread that Venus gives her in between her tasks. Anyway, Orwell thinks about the religious initiations in the Greeklands, whereby a man was said to die and live again before his soul left the body. And in particular, she recalls the conversation Socrates had with his friends before he drank the poison, the hemlock. And he said that true wisdom is a skill and practice of death. And Orwell supposes that here he's referring to death of our passions, our desires, and our vain opinions. And I'm wondering, based on a lot of our conversation, if he's referring to, or if what Lewis is referring to here, maybe not Socrates, but death of the self, the, the part that she needs to die, that before she can actually die, some part of her needs to die. I, that self in, contains passions, desires, and vain opinions, but I think it contains that falsity too that we've built up. I would say that's fair. And Orwell, she then suddenly thinks that she can see things clearly. She writes, To say that I was Ungit meant that I was ugly in soul as she, greedy, blood-gorged. But if I practiced true philosophy, and Socrates meant it, 
I should change my ugly soul into a fair one. And this, the gods helping me, I would do. I would set about it at once. But would they help? Nevertheless, I must begin. Have we mentioned, I think I did in a previous episode, but have you brought it up, the, the four tasks from the ancient myth, and this being that, kind of that next one? In an earlier episode, I recorded the Cupid and Psyche myth, the, uh, one of the original versions. Fantastic, because she has like the sorting of the huge pile of seeds, which really represented what she did before of sorting through her memories and realizing they're distorted. Well, here we have, she's supposed to gather, um, she's supposed to get some beauty ultimately is one of the tasks as well find beauty and capture that beauty and here it's 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 for her it's always psychological and so here it's finding that beauty within her so here lewis is somewhat returning to those four tasks which we can unpack a little bit more as the chapter goes on yeah it's at least a prelude to it she's decided that she needs to be more beautiful interiorly and she's going to try really hard to be good but it doesn't go very well i can relate to that <laughs> She says, I would set out boldly each morning to be just and calm and wise in all my thoughts and acts. But before they had finished dressing me, I would find I was back and knew not how long I had been back in some old rage, resentment, gnawing fantasy or sullen bitterness. I could not hold out half an hour. This could have been, I almost chose this for the quote of the week because this is pretty much the quote of every human's lives, life. This is my quote. It's like, it's what St. Paul says. We do not what we want and our passions drive us. And I set out every day to do the right thing, to be productive, to be good, to be kind, just, and well, the opposite ends up happening by the end of the day. And this is actually something that Lewis taught us in Mere Christianity. In book three, chapter 10, he writes, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. And that's why you should do Exodus 90. <laughs> it, shows, it shows you, if you get one thing from it, um, I have been successful with it before, but I've also been utterly unsuccessful as well because this is my third time. It teaches you something under both circumstances. <laughs> that you have more discipline than you think and also you're just terrible. <laughs> yes. Well, in the discipline you think usually comes from when you are bringing in Christ and his graces. Like for me, when it's doing the daily masses, daily rosaries, the things that really allow you to stay true to it. It's not you, it's the graces that he's providing. When you start falling away from those, it's just toast. Good luck. <laughs> and in Oral's case, she compares it to when she tried to fix her appearance when she was younger. She says, I could mend my soul no more than I could mend my face. And she realizes that she can't do this without divine help. And she wonders why, they, why the gods don't help. And she concludes a rather dark lesson. She says, the gods will not love you, however you try to please them and whatever you suffer, unless you have that beauty of soul. Basically, she thinks that this is all predetermined. Uh, whether you are seeking a husband or pleasing the gods, she writes, in either race, the love of men or the love of the gods, the winner and losers are marked out from birth. So it's kind of funny. She starts thinking that she can change everything through her own strength. And when she realizes she fails, she thinks that it's all just predetermined and that she can change nothing. This is... I'm going to be curious your thoughts on this because this is something I actually struggled with this weekend. I went to confession with the priest and just felt in a really dark spot spiritually. And for sake of vulnerability, I'll leave it at that. But I was talking to a priest and I was just saying it, I've been the last like week and a half for various reasons. And I, I was just feeling shame and not very good 
and thus I wasn't thinking that God could love me. I wasn't thinking I could come to him. I actually started abandoning some of my spiritual practices, which just made it even worse because you almost think, well, I'm a fraud coming here praying this rosary because not a very good person in my heart. So why should I, Mary would be disappointed in me and praying this rosary right now, or Christ would be disappointed in me. So I, I only bring this up because this is a very real struggle that when our soul's beautiful, then God will love us. In the rather than recognizing that it's through God's love that our soul can become beautiful. And that's such a hard thing. I only just share that for listeners that even us, like even as the host and doing this, reading all this, I mean, that's just a tough thing. And I'm noticing that in my life a lot lately. And I would just compare it to getting into shape. So I'm getting married soon, starting to work on that wedding body. (laughs) Uh, And after you've had a day when you've eaten lots of carbs and chocolate and sat on the couch and done nothing, you might think, well, I'm not going to get anywhere with this. And the temptation is just to stay there. But if a friend calls you up and says, hey, let's go on a run, obviously with six feet distance between us, uh, if, he, if he offers you that invitation to go on a run, you'd be crazy to turn it down just because you haven't done well so far. This is an invitation to... Uh, to have that conversion, that metanoia, that turn around and begin again. And that's the invitation that God gives us when we're trying to be good and failing. And that's what I love. This isn't meant to be some theological defense, but that's what I love about the physical act of confession. I mean, I was praying and asking for grace and forgiveness, and of course God was providing it. But when I went to the confession, naming it to a person, holy cow, like it was just, there's such a therapeuticness to it. It doesn't have power over you anymore because you just told someone out loud and you're, you're just thinking, I'm going to go there. And then this guy's going to think, wow, oof, oof. hey, buddy, <laughs> <laughs> you might need to do some huge penance or something like that's what your brain is thinking. And then he just looks at you lovingly and doesn't flinch. And you're like, ah, oh, that's how God's looking at me. Mm-hmm. And then to hear those words, your sins are being forgiven. Go and sin no more. Yes. Mm. Anyways, sorry to take a little few minute detour there. (laughs) No worries. Well, Oral then goes to her room. It's about one o'clock and she has a vision. She's standing by a great river in a gorgeous land. On the opposite bank, she sees a flock of rams, which she describes as high as horses, mightily horned, and their feces such bright gold. And she recognizes that these are the rams of the gods. And she believes that if she can get one golden fleece off their sides, she'll have the beauty that she desires. So this is what you were talking about earlier. This was traditionally uh, a, a task of psyche. This is something that Venus gives her in order to prove that she can be a good wife or to see her fail, depending upon how you like to look at it. In love that it brings back to like golden. Remember the golden hair of her sister being cut off was the moment all of the shame came into her. So there's just like the bookend to this. Well, this is going to cure all of that in her mind. Exactly. And so she swims to the other side where the flock charges at her like a solid wall of living gold. That's how she describes it. And with their terrible force, their curled horns struck me and knocked me flat and their hooves trampled me. But I think it's a little strange because she says that They were not doing it in anger. They rushed over me in their joy. Perhaps they did not see me. Certainly I was nothing in their minds. I understood it well. They butted and trampled me because their gladness led them on. The divine nature wounds and perhaps destroys us merely by being what it is. We call it wrath of the gods, as if the great cataract in Fars 
were angry with every fly it sweeps down into its green thunder. Did that remind you of The Great Divorce? Oh, in about every way you could think of. It would also remind me of mere Christianity of the dentist of you come in, you get your tooth out, and it's not going to stop pulling until everything's clean. Like It is painful. When you let God in, he is going to drastically, his divine nature is going to break down walls and crush things and move things around. And it is going to be painful, but it's out of a gladness and a joy. It's not out of some hurt or some negativity or some anger is probably the better word. Um, and heavenly things, holy things, they're more substantial. It's almost like she's describing herself as being a ghost. And these rams, like the solid spirits in The Great Divorce, they barely even see her. Mm-hmm. Orwell eventually is able to stand back up and it's then that she sees there's someone else there a mortal woman who doesn't seem to see her and who walks along the hedge of the field picking the wool which has been caught on the thorns as the rams rushed at Orwell and, and this entire situation it causes Orwell to despair she writes what I had sought in vain by meeting the joyous and terrible brutes she took at her leisure this other woman She won without effort what utmost effort would not win for me. I now despaired of ever ceasing to be Ungit. Who do you think this other woman is? Oh, I mean, my first guess, I don't actually know. My first guess was just Psyche. Yeah, I think so too. But I don't blame her for being in despair right now. Think of her position. She has, in the other chapters, learned that she is Ungit. She's learned she's somewhat like her father. She learned she has devouring love. She destroyed Bardia. She's... She's learned all of this stuff. She's recognized she has an ugly soul. She needs to beautify it. She's attempted to beautify it and it hasn't worked. That's where she's at right now. That's a tough spot. And in our own spiritual journey, many of us maybe have been there. I don't know if if in your journey, those points where you recognized how broken you were, how ugly you are. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to fix this and become good. And it doesn't work. It does lead to a despair. And that's where she's at right now. And that's fine, just as long as you learn the lesson from that despair. Yes. But at this point, Oral seems to come out of the vision. And she tells us that she went about her daily life with the rest of the world, oblivious to this turmoil that was going on inside her. And although her judgments were thought even wiser and more just than before, she just seems, I suppose, disconnected from it all. And she even describes people as being more like shadows than real men which is both an echo of the Great Divorce, and it's also a very platonic idea that things of this world are mere shadows of the the true forms. And although she seeks justice, she doesn't really care about the petty squabbles of the people. She just seems very detached. And there's just one thing, one thing that gives her comfort. It's how she regards her love of Psyche. I had at least loved Psyche truly. There, if nowhere else, I had the right of it, and the gods were wrong. And as a prisoner in a dungeon or a sick man on his bed makes much of any little shred of pleasure he still has, so I made much of this. And on one particularly tiresome day at work, she takes the very book that we are reading, and she then goes into the garden to comfort herself. She says, to gorge myself with comfort reading over how I had cared for Psyche and taught her and tried to save her and wounded myself for her sake. Isn't that so relatable? I I just painted that picture of the position she's in right now, a position of despair. Everything in her life is being turned upside down. Everything she hung on to, she clung to has been false. 
So she's clinging to the one last thing that she's going to have to give up that we're going to see here in the upcoming sections of this chapter. That's how often do we do that when we get so down in life, we cling to that last part of our false self that's been our protective nature. Because that's what's happening to her. Her entire protection she's built up over an entire book has been disintegrated in front of her eyes. But there's one thing remaining, in, in her mind at least, that she thinks was real. And it was her love for Psyche. And it's now time for that to be fixed. Yes. And so as she opens her book to read the story once again of how much she loved Psyche, she has another vision. I was walking over burning sands, carrying an empty bowl. I must find the spring that rises from the river that flows in the deadlands and fill it with the water of death and bring it back without spilling a drop and give it to Ungit. If I did all the tasks she set me, perhaps she would let me go free. There's the next task. And Orwell walks through the desert in the noonday sun for what seems like a hundred years And she eventually arrives at the foot of some great mountains, which are covered with innumerable serpents and scorpions. And she describes the place as a huge torture chamber, but the instruments were all living. And she somehow knows that in the heart of this mountain, this is where the well is, where she can get this water that she's searching for. Once again, she just despairs. And then she sees an eagle overhead that's sent by the gods. It lands nearby, and it reminds her something of the priest, and the bird asks who she is. Orwell, Queen of Gloam, said I. Then it is not you that I was sent to help. It's very interesting that, the, that Orwell identifies herself as the queen, and the eagle doesn't seem to be particularly bothered by that title. And the eagle asks, what is that role that you carry in your hands? And Orwell says that, to her great dismay, that she sees that what she's carrying is not an empty bowl anymore, but a book. And she says that this was her complaint against the gods. And at this, the eagle claps his wings and lifts his head and cries out with a loud voice, She's come at last. Here is the woman who has a complaint against the gods. Come into court. Your case is to be heard. I wanted to make a comment that I think was very beautifully done on Lewis's part with the looking up at the mountain and seeing how painful it's going to be, the traps of the living things, but then knowing that at the core of that is what she needs. How often in our own journey, when we're, we're looking into ourselves, self-reflection, self-awareness, introspection, and we realize the things that are keeping us from full communion with God, and they're usually the last parts of ourselves we're holding on to, that last 5%, 10%, 15%, because they're what we believe are the most important parts of protecting ourselves. And I don't know if this is what Lewis was attempting to communicate, but remember, she's got like one last thing to get rid of. And that's her love of psyche or I'm not get rid of it, but realize it was false. And she's looking up at this mountain. She knows she's got to get this one last thing and sees how scary it is, but knows that that's what needs to be done. I even know the things in my life where I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I'm still holding on to these, but oh, I'm so scared out of my mind to let go of them. We're back at mere Christianity. And when Lewis says, when Christ says, be ye perfect, it's not so much that he demands us to be perfect in our own right. He is saying, if you let me in, I will make you nothing less than perfect. You're called to be a heavenly creature. And that means that we can't carry with us any hellish souvenirs. 
Mm-hmm. And well, she's here in the court and we're about to see some of these last hellish souvenirs of hers taken off. So after this eagle has said that she has arrived, Orwell tells us that dark things like men came out of the mountain and they hustled her forward. She writes, I was dragged and pushed and sometimes lifted up among the rocks till at last a great black hole yawned before me. Bring her in, the court waits, came the voices. And with a sudden shock of cold, I was hurried in out of the burning sunlight into the dark inwards of the mountain. And then further and further in, always in haste, always passed from hand to hand, and always with the din of shouts. Here she is, she's come at last, to the judge, to the judge. Then the voices changed and grew quieter. And now it was, let her go, make her stand up, silence in court, silence for her complaint. And I don't know about you, but the image that I have in my head is from the most recent Star Wars movie when they go and see Palpatine and they're surrounded by all of these shadowy figures in this dark, dark area. I don't remember that. You haven't seen the latest Star Wars movie? I saw it opening night, but as we've learned, David, your memory is about three times as good as my memory. (laughs) I get 80% of stuff. Okay. (laughs) Well, the other thing that it reminds me of is the story of Ungit herself. Remember the Ungit stone? In the last chapter, we were told that the priest said that the stone didn't fall from the sky, but came up from the center of the earth. Well, we seem to be going into the center of the earth for this judgment. Uh, Perhaps it also points to uh, something of a a rebirth, like a womb that she is receding into in order for a change to happen. That would be very fitting and very Christian. So Orwell looks around and there's a very dull light, but she can see that she's standing on a pillar of rock and she's surrounded by a great silent assembly of ghosts. This is the Star Wars illusion that I was talking about earlier. And she looks around and sees many faces that she recognizes. And she says this a couple of times that she can see people's faces. So something in death is revealing them. And she sees Butter and the King and the Fox and Argon. And then she sees the judge. She writes, On the same level with me, though far away, sat the judge. Male or female, who could say? Its face was veiled. It was covered from crown to toe in sweepy black. So, Matt, I'm interested. Who do you think this is? I just assumed, I didn't give it much thought. I just assumed the judge was like the god of the mountain or the same one that Psyche's husband is. Maybe they're somewhat one and the same, interrelated, but you can't see them. They're, it's too much to be able to handle, which has been a theme throughout all of this. So I guess that was just my assumption. I think I'll probably say the same thing. So we're going to finally learn about the god of the mountain and unget a little bit. But the first thing that is unveiled is Oral herself, because the judge orders her to be uncovered, and her veil is taken off and she's stripped naked. And Oral writes, the crone, referring to herself, with her ungit face, stood naked before those countless gazers. No thread to cover me, no bowl in my hand to hold the water of death, only my book. And notice she had no chance to stop that. Nope. In life, we have a chance to cover ourselves up as a protective measure. In, the, in front of God, no, it's done. It's going to be off. Yeah, it rather alludes to First Corinthians when Paul talks about our day of judgment, when our works will be tested by fire. And we'll see, see how they fare against the fire. And all Orwell has is her book. Oh, it makes me think of, and you can say this because you remember things well. 
the um, <laughs> the Fulton Sheen quote that you put in the Slack channel with uh, you're looking at your hands and seeing and looking at. That's all I got. Finish it for me. <laughs> Uh, okay, this was the last recorded sermon of Archbishop Fulton Sheen. And I think he gave this on Good Friday. It was his Good Friday reflection. And he said, show me your hands. Are they scarred? Are they wounded in service? Show me your feet. Have you gone about doing good? Show me your side. Show me your heart. Have you left room for divine love? <laughs> I sent that to people. <laughs> it was a good quote. So I just it's, felt people wanted to hear that. Uh, I'll include a link to it in the show notes. It, every time I listen to that, it makes my hair go up on end. Yeah. It made me think to myself, there's homeless ministries one or two blocks away from my apartment. And I used to do that in San Diego and I have not done it yet here. It's a pretty big ministry. My hands are not scarred right now. They're, they're soft from moisturizer. <laughs> well, a little dry from or Purell right now, but... <laughs> The judge then orders her to read her complaint. And at this, she realizes that she's not holding her book, the thing that we have been reading. Instead, it's this little shabby crumpled thing. Why do you think that she's holding this little shabby crumpled thing and not her book? In my opinion, it's because as we're about to see what she reads, everything boils down to one very simple thing. And it was her possessive love. It's the last thing that she needs to get rid of. And well, I'm going to rechange that. As I go through it, I think I just came up with a new answer. Her book was, she needed to sort through her book, her pages, and see things differently. She did that in chapter one and two of this, this part two. She's already processed a lot of that. I think this is the last part that's left. And notice everything she's going to read is about psyche. Thus, it's not that the other stuff wasn't important, which is the point I was about to make. She already did that. That's been worked through. But this is the last bit. And I would say this is the most important part as well. And I'd also say that she has been physically stripped. And what she is now holding in her hand is what her book is when it is physically stripped. When all the extraneous stuff is taken away and we see the core of it, we see the core of her complaint. And you could also say that it somewhat even represents her soul. It represents at least that twisted part of her soul that has remained thus far unaddressed. And Orwell says that she finds herself unrolling it, and she describes it. She says, it was written all over inside, but the hand was not like mine. It was a vile scribble, each stroke mean and yet savage, like the snarl in my father's voice, like the ruinous faces one could make out in the ingot stone. So it kind of looks like the, the rantings of a crazy person. Hmm. Fitting. And against her will, she says, I heard myself reading it, which I think is a very loaded phrase. Because I think she now finally hears herself. But notice that she couldn't hear herself until she stripped everything else away first. And I think there's a lot of truth in that right there of our own journeys. And Orwell, she starts reading and she admits that she saw the God. She saw his house. And as you say, she then really switches gears and she mainly talks about psyche. But she also talks about the gods. She said that she could have endured it if the gods were things like Ungit and the Shadow Brute, i.e. ugly. But her chief complaint is about what the gods did with Psyche. She says, You know well that I never really began to hate you until Psyche began talking of her palace and her lover and her husband. Why did you lie to me? You said a brute would devour her. Well, why didn't it? Harsh. I'd have wept for her and buried what was left and built her a tomb and, and, 
But to steal her love from me? Can it be that you really don't understand? Those we love best, whoever's worth loving, those are the very ones you'll pick out. Now oh, I can see it happening age after age and growing worse and worse the more you reveal your beauty. The son turning his back on his mother and the bride on her groom, stolen away by this everlasting calling, calling, calling of the gods, taken where we can't follow. Wow. First, right at the end there, I didn't pick that up until your dramatic reading. Uh, <laughs> the son turning his back on the mother. Yeah, it just reminds you of the great divorce and the mother that loved her son too much. I don't, I don't think that language was unintentional on Lewis's part. I would also add another parallel. It's rather like in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've come to not to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So in the new covenant, in Christianity, the gods take away those we love in a sense insofar as those who are open to the love that we can receive from Christ, they will be united with them in a very special way that can divide families. And so Orwell is complaining that you took the best things that we love, you, you, you took their love away from us. Again, it comes back to this idea of love being a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how much some of it is could be intentional and unintentional. And what I mean by that is... Going back to the first part, you said a brute would devour her. Well, why didn't it? Well, a brute did devour her, except as we've learned, the brute was Orwell. And so they didn't lie to her. So I'm a little curious, similar to the son and the mother in the great divorce, if we could say theologically, and I am asking you your thoughts on this, if Orwell is devouring Psyche or the son is devouring her son, if God intentionally takes them away to one, protect the person from the devouring love and two, to by the person being devoured and then two, to help save the person doing the devouring, because if they have a possessive love, that is going to prevent them from ever loving God enough. It's like a severe mercy when Lewis argues at the end of that book. And I, the reason I'm curious your thoughts is because it's a bit dangerous because it starts to put on what's God's will and using people and taking people and death and stuff. But I'm curious if there's a chance that that can be part of it. And that would be that intentional side. I think that's definitely the lesson that we get from the great divorce. When Reginald is talking to Pam, he says that God took her son, both for his own good and for hers. I completely agree. We can't offer that kind of judgment this side of the veil, he can do it because he is a saint now in heaven and has been able to see things clearly. We can't. But at least in that scenario, Lewis is talking about how that surgery can work for both. And ultimately, that is what heaven is. Heaven is the quarantining of sin so that sin can't infect it anymore. It's the line from The Great Divorce, otherwise you'd make a dog in a manger, the tyrant of the universe. Uh but also the taking away of the object of this distorted love could possibly lead somebody to look elsewhere for that love and rightly ordered, i.e. the love of God. Quarantine, David. I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah. But just to reiterate, as you said, it's not like we can draw such a simple assessment here on earth to say, oh, well, this person died for this reason. We can't do that. 
we're not God. So the big caveat there is if you've lost a person you've loved, it does not for one second mean you love them too much or it was taken away. But I wonder if what we can say for sure is that even something like that is an invitation to divine love, to cast your cares on Christ for he loves you. Yes. That goes to that quote in scripture. I think I asked you to brew last time of God brings good out of all things, good or evil, which somewhat he can bring call to that divine love out of such a bad, unfortunate circumstance. Mm. Now, what Orwell really doesn't like is the fact that the gods appear beautiful. She says it would be far better for us if you are foul and ravening. We'd rather you drank their blood, the blood of those that they love, than stole their hearts. We'd rather they were ours and dead than yours and made immortal. And this is Pam right out from The Great Divorce, that she would rather her son be with her in hell than happy in heaven. And is, what does this suggest? Is her chief complaint um, that the gods took love from her? Is her chief complaint that the gods are beautiful and allure people away from her, ultimately? They didn't take, in, in, a, in a sense, they didn't take Psyche from her. She's starting to realize that Psyche might have just been lured to their beauty. There's a line that Lewis says elsewhere where he says, speaking of God, he cannot ravage, he can only woo. Mm. That's exactly what I was just saying. Well, well put. And she goes on, and this is the point where I think we see she is Pam from The Great Divorce. She says, but to steal her love from me, to make her see things I couldn't see. Oh, you'll say you've been whispering it to me all these 40 years that I had signs enough, her palace was real, could have known the truth if I wanted. But how could I want to know it? Tell me that. The girl was mine. What right had you to steal her away into your dreadful heights? You'll say I was jealous. Jealous of Psyche? Not while she was mine. Did you ever remember whose girl she was? She was mine. Mine. Do you not know what that word means? Mine. Your thieves, seducers. That's my wrong. I'll not complain, not now, that you're blood drinkers and man-eaters. I'm past that. And the judge eventually stops her. And Orwell realizes that she's just been reading this same little script over again and again, dozens of times, which I think demonstrates her interior monologue and really what's been running throughout the book that we've been reading underneath it. Orwell says, I would have read it forever. Hmm, does that sound like hell? Quick as I could, starting the first word again, almost before the last was out of my mouth, if the judge has not stopped me. And the voice I read it in was strange to my ears. There was given to me certainty that this, at last, was my real voice. Wow. We're going to have to talk about that on the, the YouTube channel more, but I'm curious your thoughts on this. And Well, do we want to unpack this a little bit, or do you want to do the last sentence first and bring a full closure? Okay, let's bring closure, because there's this long silence that follows once the judge has stopped her, and then the judge spoke. Are you answered? He said. And she responds, yes. So Matt, explain that all to us. Yeah, I got it. No big, <laughs> this, is, this is easy. No, there are a number of things that as you were reading that I wanted to pull out, but the thing I want to first start with here is at the very end, because this is what we've been talking about this whole time, and you are better at synthesizing myself, but I know there's a lot here. There was given to me a certainty that this at last was my real voice. So we've been talking about that false self, true self. I know I've been putting that on a lot in applying it and potentially over applying it, but there's clearly some truth to it. 
and she's finally peeled back these layers of the self that she's built up. I think we can say that confidently. This chapter was about this last bit of hers that she was deceiving herself on. And the false self is really a deception. But what I want to get your thoughts on is here she says she gets to her real voice. Let's use the word real voice. Think of it maybe as your true self. I'm curious how you would articulate what that is. I think I would just say it's her true self. She is for once being barefaced. She is showing who she really is and communicating her real hurts, wants, and needs. This is like in the Psalms when the psalmist just yells at the heavens. Where are you, God? Why has this happened? I'm in dire straits here. Where the hell are you? I'm glad you use those words right there. Her real hurts, wants, and needs. Because one thing that I know I have probably made the mistake of, because this has all been new language to me, and as listeners know, we're on a journey and we're all learning together here. False self can come across as purely negative. True self can come across as purely like, oh, you're authentic, pure, perfect self. No. I mean, I wrote about that in a blog post with Jean Valjean, recognizing a lot of his false self was actually beautiful, but it was definitely, it was still suppressing this deep part of himself. And here we're seeing that her real self is broken. It's devouring. It's ugly to some degree, but it's still her and she still has to get to it. And then when you get to that, maybe why Frederick Buechner says only when we enter into the deepest parts of ourself and our deepest secrets, can we meet the one is what he says in his book, Telling Secrets. That's when you allow the divine love to come in and start transforming it, which I'm hoping and praying we see in chapter four. I'm not giving anything away because I have no idea. I've already completely forgotten this entire book from reading it nine months ago. Uh, But that's, I, I, I like that desires, wants, fears, good, bad. She's finally getting to the core of that. And that's so important on the spiritual journey. This reminds me of a Casting Crowns song called Stained Glass Masquerade. And the imagery that's in the lyrics, it speaks about the face that we put on when we go to church. The lyrics go, is there anyone that fails? Am I the only one in church today feeling so small? Because when I take a look around, everybody seems so strong. I know they'll soon discover that I don't belong. So I tuck it all away like everything's okay. If I make them all believe it, maybe I'll believe it too. So with a painted grin, I'll play the part again so that everyone will see me the way that I see them. And then in the chorus, it says, are we happy plastic people under shiny plastic steeples with walls around our weakness and smiles that hide our pain? But the invitation is open to every heart that's been broken. Maybe then we'll close the curtain on our stained glass masquerade. Ooh, mm. that's about as close to slow clap worthy as you can get without getting one. <laughs> I gave too many away last week. I can't do, you know. You did. You did. That was too much. You can't give too many of those or else they start losing their value. The one other thing I wanted to pull out from this was the mind, 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 mind. So much of the spiritual journey, so much in other Lewis's works and his writings is that concept of letting go of yourself, dying to yourself. I believe a lot of that's coming through here. Her possessive love, that jealousy, mind, 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 holding on to these things. We don't we can't enter into communion with God until we let go of our will and our desires um, fully to him, surrender them. And that's what she has here at the crux. I mean, notice that's honestly in the last two or three sentences of her entire monologue. She says mine five times, something like that. 
and nothing is ever truly ours. It's, in fact, quite a ridiculous thing to ever say about anything. Yes. Wow. All right. Are there other thoughts you have? I mean, that's what's so hard here that we could have, we could, we could talk so much about what was in that, but I think we covered a lot here. What would be kind of fun to do is a, well, we always do a retrospective episode. So yeah, that'll give us a chance to pull out some of the big themes, I think, because there's been so much in here. Yeah, we'll do our retrospective after we've had Andrew on and he's given us all the answers <laughs> to make sure that we say the right thing. Yes, great call. So I think let's wrap it up there. And we would like to thank our Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Kate and Rowdy. Yeah, thank you guys. And we'd ask you all to join us again next week when I'll be interviewing David Beckman and we'll be going further up. In further in. Cheers. Cheers. If people haven't signed off yet, Nick should keep this in because how did you just skip right past making a joke about David Beckman, not to be confused with Beckham? I just hope people are going to miss here and then they'll send it to all of their friends and they'll subscribe. (laughs) All right. On that note, goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye.